welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. I, uh, I woke up this morning, and I drove to church pretty early, like early enough there was no snow. And so when I got here, I was like, oh man, it's going to be a great Thursday. Uh, just like kind of spent some time in prayer. And then I, I looked outside the window and it was just like completely different. Like it gone from being like completely normal to now there was like blizzarding conditions. And I texted Luke. I was like, what are we doing? Because <laughs> I was like, I really hope we don't cancel. I just prepped a message. And sure enough, he texted. He's like, we don't cancel for anything. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I love that. So Sure enough, here at Redeemer 20s, we preach the word, and we preach it unapologetically, and we preach it whether there is snow, rain, sunshine, it don't matter. We're going to preach the word, and so we're going to jump in, but before we do, uh, why don't we uh, bow our heads in prayer. Dear God, thank you for this evening. Um, Lord, thank you for the power that you have, the power to bring storms and snow and all these different things, Lord, and it should be a comfort to our hearts to know that, Lord, it's the same power that you use to protect us. It's the same power that you use to, to save us. It's the same power you use to carry us out in our faith, even when we're weak. And Lord, I pray that tonight as we open up your word, God, that you would speak to us and that your Holy Spirit would just descend on this place, that your presence would fill the room. And God, that it wouldn't be driven by just emotion, but by truth, Lord, that it would be the truth of your word shining clearly through um, this passage in the gospel of John that God affects our hearts and transforms us. And Lord, encourages us in our faith. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know you, I pray that it would convict. And so, Lord, would you be over this time? Would you open our eyes, Lord? Would you take the scales off so that we can see what you have in store for us? I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, please open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 30. All right, once you're there, what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. You're going to have to bear with me for a second. You close your eyes. And when they're closed, I want you to imagine that you are standing in the middle of a courtroom. Uh, maybe you are in an episode of Judge Judy. Maybe you're at the Johnny Depp trial. Or maybe you're watching Psych with Sean and Gus and they're at court. I don't know where it is, but wherever you are, I want you to fix that picture of a courtroom in your mind. And once you've got it, I want you to open your eyes. All right. Why did I do that? Because in John chapter 5, Jesus invites us to step into the courtroom of God so that we may know who he is. And this courtroom is a lot like our own. I don't want to confuse any of you. This is not a physical place I'm talking about. This is a spiritual reality um, that we're focusing on tonight. But if we were there bodily in the courtroom of God, what you would see is something similar to the image in your head. Like if, you, if you came in at the very front, you would see a spot for the judge, right? And he would have his, uh, his mallet. We were talking before this. I said, man, I should have brought a mallet. I could like hit it and it would have the awesome effect. So you just have to imagine mallet. And that would be your judge. And then across from them, you would have a position for the defense and for the prosecution. And then next to the judge, there would be a stand for witnesses. So not much would change visibly from what you already know. And yet this courtroom is far more important than any other on earth. Yes, because it's God's courtroom, but even more so because of the trial it's holding. When Jesus came to the earth, he claimed to be the son of God. And not only that, he made himself equal with God and claimed to be God. And it's because of that, that the Jews wanted to kill him. They did not believe this claim. If you look at John chapter five, verse 18, it says as much. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so the Jews didn't misunderstand what Jesus said. It wasn't that Jesus, you know, said some things and then they misquoted him. And okay, he said he was the son of God, we're going to kill him. No, Jesus said, I am the son of God. I am God. You need to believe in me. And it's because of that that they wanted to kill him because they did not believe. And that was their accusation in this trial that we're going to be stepping into. And it's an accusation you should already be familiar with. Um, if you've maybe been at work and you've invited a coworker that you're a friend with to 20s, and you've consistently shared your faith or at least told them that you're a believer again and again and again, and they've never accepted over the last three months that you've been trying, haven't they made the same accusation as the Jews? They've put Jesus on trial in their hearts and they've found him lacking. What they've told you by not coming or not listening is that Jesus is a fraud. And if they're right, then Jesus does deserve to be mocked and forgotten. And we all should just stop playing church and go home today. But if they're wrong and Jesus is right, then he is the only hope that we have for salvation. He is the only light in this entire world and there is nothing more important you could do with your life than follow him. That's what is at stake in this trial. So it's a pretty big one. That's why it's so important. And here in our passage, John chapter five, we get a glimpse into the courtroom. We're peeking in and we're gonna see Jesus respond to his accusers. So let's read together starting in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do, I'm gonna start in, yeah, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you. To the Father, there is another who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Quite the response. Jesus has a lot to say to the people who would accuse him of being a fraud. And as we jump in, I want to start by clarifying something. Uh, I want to draw your attention to the first thing that Jesus says. You can almost imagine if we're back in the courtroom, Jesus gives up to give his opening statement. And the first thing that he says is in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus gets up to the stand. The first thing he says is, don't listen to me. You're like, what? Jesus, that's probably not the best strategy here. What is he saying? Is he really saying that, you know, if it's just me who testifies to me being God, I'm a liar. Is that really what he's trying to tell us here? Does he mean it's not true? Well, not at all. Here's what, here's what the truth is. Even if Christ were the only one to say that he is God, his testimony would be true. What Jesus is saying here by not true is that his testimony 
even though valid because he is God, would not be permitted in court according to the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall charge be established. So here's what Jesus is doing. He gets up and he says, If I alone bear witness, my witness is not true. He's acknowledging the judicial process of, uh, of the time and really of Scripture, which says that you need more than two or three witnesses if you're going to prove that your claim is true. And remember, Jesus is the one who made the claim. He said, I am the son of God. I have authority from God. And so now he's here to back it up. And here's the best part. Jesus doesn't bring two witnesses. He doesn't bring three witnesses. He brings five. Jesus brings five witnesses. So there is no room for doubt. And I love this. It's like absolute overkill, but he does it anyways. Because he doesn't want anyone to doubt his claim. He says, I want you to know who I am. I'm not going to try and hide it. It's not going to be obscure. I am the son of God and you can believe in me. And because the five witnesses testify to my identity, you can know that I am the son of God. That's the heartbeat of this passage right here. That you can trust in Jesus as the son of God because of the testimony of these five witnesses. And so we're going to unpack each and every one of them tonight, beginning with the first, which is the preacher. So my title uh, is In the Courtroom of God, and then each point will finish it, and it'll be one of the witnesses. And so in the courtroom of God, the preacher testifies. Uh, Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And he's talking about John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, way back, you've got to reach into the archives of your head because this was a while ago. But when we were looking at that passage, what happened is that John the Baptist had amassed a huge following by preaching. He came before Jesus and he was preaching a message of repentance. And his following was getting so, so big that the Jewish leaders sent a delegation. They sent a group to John to figure out who in the world is this guy who's eating locusts and honey and somehow has a megachurch. You know, it'd be like if some hobo started preaching on like state and alpine. And then all of a sudden it's like, this dude's got a mega church. It's like, what's happening here? Okay, we got to figure this out. So they send their group to John and they say, are you the Christ? He goes, no, I'm not the Christ. He says, I am merely here to bear witness to the one who is to come. The one who is greater than me. The one whose straps I'm not able to even undo because he is so beyond me. And so John deflects the glory, right? He's Jesus, he says, I must decrease, he must increase. And he points away from himself to Jesus. And we know that because John chapter 1, again, after the the Pharisees come to him, it's the next day that Jesus shows up. And as soon as Jesus is on the scene, what does John say? He says, behold the Lamb of God. And so the whole time, John is so clear in his ministry. He doesn't want anyone confused. He says, look, that's the guy, that's the Christ, that's the Son of God, believe in him. And Jesus wants to remind his uh, audience about that. You know, it's almost like he's throwing the challenge flag. (laughs) I knew you would like that. Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about. There's been a commercial for the last couple months, if you've been watching the NFL, and it's from Progressive. It's called the Progressive Replay Commercial. What happens is usually there's some kind of disagreement. There's an argument. Maybe a, you know, a, a couple went on a retreat and then like one of them forgot batteries. And they're like, no, you forgot the batteries. You forgot the batteries. He goes, okay, challenge flag. He throws it. And what that is is from football. And when you throw a challenge flag, you're challenging what happens so you can get a replay. And so sure enough, they pull up the box and they look at it. And it's supposed to be all funny because they're looking back. Oh, yeah, it was the husband. He's the idiot. Ha, ha, ha. Ding. Okay, they're commercial. Somehow that means you should get progressive. I never figured that part out. I was like, what does this have to do with insurance? I don't know. Anyways, it's what came up to my mind when I read this. Because what Jesus is doing is he's throwing the challenge flag at the very beginning. He's like, hey, let me remind you. You went to John. And guess what John told you? I'm him. I'm God. I'm the son. And the truth is, a lot of the same people that Jesus um, is talking to right now were followers of John. And so he's trying to remind them um, that John had 
uh, testified to him as the son of God. Now, why does he do that? Look with me at what Jesus says after verse 33. He says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. That's why Jesus starts with the preacher. God doesn't need a man to testify to his identity to prove that he's God. God doesn't need anyone to prove that he is God. But the reason Jesus is pointing them back to John is because even in the middle of this situation where they want to kill him, you have to remember that, they're here wanting to kill him. Jesus' heart is that they would be saved. He's compassionate towards them. And so he doesn't need to bring up John, but he does. Not for his own sake, but for their sake. He wanted these people to remember when they were following John so that they would turn and repent now and be saved. And the same is true today. I mean, Jesus doesn't need me. Jesus doesn't need Paul. Jesus doesn't need Luke to come up here and to convince you all that God exists. But he has given us to you. He has given Pastor John. He has given Pastor JT. He has given pastors, men who preach, as a gift to the church for the purpose that people may be saved by the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. And there's a warning that comes with this first testimony. Because many of the people who listened to John, they heard his testimony, did not believe in Jesus Christ when he came. If you look at verse 35, Jesus says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice forever? All the time? No. He says you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. What this means is that the, really, again, the same people who are in this text that Jesus is addressing, some of them were following John. Like these were people who were with John, hearing him preach the good news, repent, and they were in it. They were getting baptized. And now Jesus comes and they're wanting to kill him. And so there's been, a, a, something has changed. The gospel seed had been planted in their hearts through John's preaching, but then the thorns of the world had come and choked it out. And the sobering reality that confronted me as I read this is that the same will happen to people at our church and in this ministry. There will be people who come to Redeemer and they will enjoy the light of the gospel as it is preached from the stage. And it will be for a time awesome for them. They'll see the joy at this church and in the 20s ministry and it will draw them in like moths to the flame. But in the end, they will turn away from Christ and back into their darkness. And God, even though he desires that they would be saved, will release them into the destruction that they have chosen as they reject Jesus Christ in the life that he brings. So be on your guard, believer. Be on your guard. Don't come on Thursdays and drift in and out of the message. When you're here on a Sunday and you're listening to the preacher testify to who the Son of God is, don't zone out. When, when you're there, like, listen to what is being said from Pastor John. And I don't mean just, like, zone it. No, listen. Really listen. Because God has given him to you to strengthen your faith. And there are people who are going to sit under that and reject it. And I don't want that to be anyone in this group. The first testimony that Jesus brings is John's. And the reason why is because it is the preacher's testimony that supplies life and endurance to the faith of those who follow Jesus. And so that's the first testimony he starts with. It has, he doesn't even use it to prove his identity. Even though that's kind of the secondary reason it's there. He starts with it because he wants these people to be saved. Okay, So that's why God has given the testimony of the preacher that we may be saved. And brings me to the second witness, which is the works of Christ. So if we're in the courtroom, the first person up onto the stand is John the Baptist. He gets up and he speaks. Yes, this is the Son of God. And he steps down 
And what comes up immediately after is the work of Christ. Jesus says so in verse 36. He says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, now they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so there we see it, that the works, when he's talking about this idea of works testifying, he's talking about all the signs and all the miracles he had done. Everything that he had done pointed to his identity as the Son of God. And now you kind of have to ask the question, or at least I was confronted with it, what separates then these miracles that testify to his godhood from the ones that other people have done? You know, Elijah raised people from the dead. Moses split the Red Sea. You've seen a lot of guys do it. What makes Jesus God and not them? If, it, if we're using miracles as a witness. I think it's a valid question, and here's the key. What separates the miracles of Christ from the miracles of other people is the relationship that Christ has with God. Paul preached on this uh, last week, but in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. And this is really key. But only what he sees the father doing can he do. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Uh, Hebrews 1 says it this way. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so it's almost in the same way that if I stand in front of a mirror and I wave my hand, my reflection waves back. It's saying that Jesus is the reflection of God the Father. Everything he does is a reflection. Every single act is God's act. The two are so inseparable um, that they are the one and the same. And it's because of this dynamic relationship between the Father and the Son that the works of Jesus are then uniquely divine. You know, every other prophet, every other person who had done a miracle at that time, it was a gift from God, a special anointing at that point in time to accomplish his will. Jesus, that is not the case. It is God himself acting every time Jesus moves. And if that's true, and you start to understand that concept that God acting is Jesus acting, Jesus acting is God acting, you start to realize that everything Jesus does tells us something about who he is and about who God the Father is. And what's crazy to me is that Jesus is just getting started at this point. He says this in John chapter 5. He goes, yeah, the works I'm doing testify to me. And it's like, okay, we've seen him heal the lame. We've seen him, you know, open the eyes of the blind, do some cool stuff. Well, wait till he feeds 5,000 people next week. John chapter 6. Wait till he just, you know, raises Lazarus from the dead. Wait till he defeats sin and death through the power of his own blood shed on the cross for you and me. Then you start to see miracles that testify to who he is. You know, as believers, we, we hold this book right here, the Bible, as inerrant. That means we believe it's perfect. We believe it's sufficient. Um, everything in here is true. And because of that, every record in this book of Christ's work testifies as a true and valid witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. And I would say that in a similar way, although not truly, God's acts today in our lives accomplish the same thing. Certainly our faith is founded on this. Um, but there are acts of God today that we see in our own lives that then testify to who Jesus Christ is. And I'm going to be very candid with you um, and just say, I have never seen what I would consider a supernatural miracle before in my life. Have I heard of them from people I deeply trust, who've mostly been overseas? Yes. But I don't think you need necessarily that to accomplish what I'm talking about here. Um, because while I haven't seen, you know, like somebody healed miraculously or like, you know, the dead raised or anything quite like that, I've had prayers answered that I could never explain. I've had payments come in where it was just, I was at the end of my own line and I just got all of a sudden, boom, there you go. Or I remember I've been praying for someone and then immediately they call me and I'm just, what? what's going on here? You know, there's all these different little things that happen and, and you look at them and you have to say, okay, God, are you working in this? And if so, 
Can that not testify to who you are? Now, what I'm not saying is to just like read into every little thing. Like if you're driving on the highway and you're like, oh man, God, I really need peace. And there's like a peace sign on the road and you're like, oh yeah, God. No, I'm not saying that. I think you can really quickly fall down that slippery slope and everything's in it. You know, it's from God or it's from the devil, you know, and we go into that. But what I am saying is while we want to avoid that, You don't want to remove God from the real life that we have. And as you look at it and you see these things that are are just inexplainable, why not let him testify to who God is? When he's brought you to church and you don't even know why, is that not God working? Or when you got saved and you were hearing someone preach and the gospel came forward, all of a sudden it convicted your heart and you see that and you're like, man, I don't even know how I was there. And you look back and all of a sudden it starts to make more sense. There's this line you can see. How is that not God? That's what I'm arguing for here. Not to say, okay, we're going to make everything an act of God. It's all proof. We're going to prove God exists from our lives. But to say, man, God does act today. And I think that is a witness. It testifies to the deity of the Son, just as much as the Word does, although we hold this higher. And so don't despair. Don't, like, disparage that. Let the work of Christ strengthen your faith. Okay, third witness. In the courtroom of God, after the works, the Father testifies. And I would say of all the witnesses you could ask for, Almighty God is not a bad one. You see it in verse 37. Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. As I was studying this, what I found is that there's a lot of disagreement as to what this verse means. There's only a couple prevailing views, but I'll give you them and then I'll tell you which one I think it is. Uh, The major one is that this, when he says God the Father testifies to who I am, they would say that Jesus means this in a more general sense. Like everything testifies to Jesus. And since God made everything, therefore the Father testifies to Jesus Christ as the Son. You know, creation, general revelation, all that stuff. I think that's valid. Like I'm not going to say that's not true. Obviously everything God does (laughs) testifies to the Son. But the second one is really where I think Jesus is trying to point us. And he's talking about what happened at his baptism. I want you all to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 9 down to 11. Here's what it says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he says the Father has testified to me. Certainly it is his works, but I think Jesus is referencing a specific instance in time. And we see this again at the transfiguration where the Father audibly spoke down into the earth. And it says that it just rang throughout the whole country that this is my son with whom I am pleased. That sounds like a testimony to me. And what's so incredible about Mark chapter 1 and really all the accounts of the baptism is that it's a triune baptism. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son, submitting in obedience to the Father, has come down to the earth to rescue a sinful people for the Father's pleasure. And as a part of that process, he is about to be baptized. And as he is going under the water, it says the Spirit is descending like a dove. So then you have the second person of the Trinity, God's spirit is descending, anointing Jesus for the special work he is about to do in going to the cross. And then as that happens for the consummation, it is the father's voice who says, this is my son. Jesus is trying to remind the the Jews who are there to say, look, God himself has told you, I am the son. My thought on this is that John the Baptist had a megachurch at the river. I don't think Jesus was the only one who heard this voice from God. 
I think some of the same people who are accusing Jesus of being a fraud, wanting to kill him, audibly heard God the Father tell them, this is my son. And yet they're here. Now they're at this point where they have rejected him. And how can that be? How can that be? In either case, so coming back to the two views, in either case, here's the consensus. The father personally testifies that Jesus Christ is indeed his son, whether it be through general or specific. And that is considered the greatest testimony. There's five testimonies in this passage, and the way you know that this one is the most important is because it's the third. This is what is, uh, it's kind of the zenith of the argument, right? You have the first two on the buildup, and then you the following two is kind of the, the, the conclusion. But at the top of the mountain, what you have is the Father's testimony. Because it's more important than John's. It's even more important than the works. It's more important than the ones that are to come. Because God the Father is over all things. And if he has said that Jesus is his son, then that's who Jesus is. And so that's the testimony we're given. It's why it comes third. And what is just should blow us all away is that the people of God were the ones who completely miss it. God tells them, here's the son, and they are the ones who miss it. Like after Jesus goes away and then goes up to heaven, everybody else gets it. Like the nations start to understand, but it's God's people who somehow blow it. Like in this, as I read this, I just was confronted with this. I was, can, all I could think is, can you imagine that like something similar happened today? We were all sitting here and God descended, you know, the spirits coming down like a, uh, uh, you know, a dove. And we just hear a voice. Jesus Christ is the son. Can you imagine like we're all just shaking and fear and trembling. And then, you know, one of us gets up and just says, no, no. (laughs) It's like, how do you blow that? You've heard God say it, but here they are and they're about to reject the son. How does that happen? Look back at John chapter 5. Jesus says it in verse 37. The second half. He says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And here it is. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Jesus says the reason why the testimony isn't enough is because you are completely devoid of God. The way you mess it up, the way you can become, (laughs) somehow blow it when God tells you who the son is, is that your heart has become so hardened to the truth that it can find a way to reject God even when he speaks from heaven. Because we all know if we were to bring all of our, you know, let's say we bring a ton of non-believers and they were here when that happened and God came down and said, Jesus Christ is my son, there would still be people who reject him. That's what a hardened heart does. And one of my favorite pictures of this idea of a hardened heart, it comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, but this is actually not from Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, but from The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book. And in it, the magician is uh, the uncle, and his name is Andrew. And somehow he and his nephew, a, a little boy named Diggory, find themselves in Narnia at, at its conception. So there's this whole thing with magic rings. I'm not going to get into it. But they show up there and they witness God, Aslan, creating everything. And what's interesting is the way Aslan creates Narnia is by singing. And Aslan is this massive lion. And he's singing. And as he sings, the world takes form and shape. And all of a sudden, it's filled with animals and whatnot. And the, the difference between the uncle and the son is their response. Diggory is amazed. He, can, he is filled with wonder at the sound of the lion singing and the way that it shapes the world and how beautiful it is and how much cohesion there is to it. But the uncle Andrew is terrified. He hates the sound. And kind of as some context, he's kind of like a dark magician. So he's an evil dude is kind of the point. But he hates the song. And as it starts to finish, and there are animals now on this planet, Aslan breathes his life into the animals so that they become uh, intellectual. They can talk. And when Diggory listens to him, he can hear them all speak. But when the uncle listens, he can only hear the roar of a lion. He can't tell that Aslan is speaking. 
And so he's terrified. Narnia is a living hell for him because he thinks all these animals that are trying to talk to him want to eat him. And it ruins the whole thing for him. And the whole reason why he can't understand Aslan, it says, is because of the hardness of his heart. He expected the lion to roar and eat him, and so that is what he saw. It is the same way with sin. The reason why the Jews could hear that Jesus is the Son and still reject him is that their hearts had been hardened to the point where they knew in their minds what they believed to be true. It wasn't what God wanted. It was what they wanted. So when God actually spoke, it didn't mean anything to them. And there's a warning in that as well, just to say that there can be a hardness of heart that comes upon someone to the point where even if God speaks to them, they don't listen. Now, God is uh, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent. He has all power, and he can shatter that hardness of heart. But what leads to it is a life of sin. And more and more rejection builds upon itself. And so even in the Father's testimony to the deity of the Son, the Jews were blinded in their hearts from the truth. And nowhere is that more clear than in the fourth witness. So at first... You know, it's the father testifying, but quickly after comes the word. The word testifies. And the Jews, just like the father, they can't receive this testimony. Because they actually don't believe it. That is the tragedy of the Jewish nation at that time. I tried to highlight this earlier. They were the only ones God chose as his people. They were the only ones that God gave his word to. And yet they were also the only ones who universally as a nation rejected Christ. Certainly some believed, and we see that throughout Scripture. But as a whole, they rejected God. And yet they were the chosen. Their hearts had become so hardened, and we're going to get to why in a second, but they were hardened to the point where even though God had given them, really you would think they would be the first ones to see Jesus as God. They are the last. They are the last. So what could blind them so strongly to the witness of the Father and his word? It was pride. And pride is what blinds them. I want to read verse 44. Jesus asked them, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I would say this is one of the key verses of this passage. Because the issue, even though Jesus is bringing five people to the stand, he's going to be rejected. And even though he's bringing up each and every one of these witnesses, John comes up, the work comes up, you know, the the father comes up, the word comes up. It's being rejected again and again and again. And the reason why is because the Jewish people lived for the approval of man. That is what is being said here. It says, you take the glory from man rather than the glory from God. What was crushing their hearts, the sin that was ruining them, was that they were living in the fear of man. And we know this is true, not just from this, but anytime it talks about the Pharisees, this was Jesus' number one indictment against them. That you care more about the outward appearance and what people think of you, and that is what actually drives your theology and your practice more than what God has given you. Right? I think one of the most condemning ones, you find it in Luke 20. Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. I always thought about that. I was like, maybe that was the fashion at the time. <laughs> long robes. But they love walking in them. And they love greetings in the marketplaces. In the best seats in the synagogues. In the places of honor at the feast. But they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so here are the Pharisees, here are the Jews, receiving the testimony of God again and again and again. And the reason why they reject Jesus is not because there is a lack of evidence. It is because they care more about this world than they do God. And that is foundational to understanding this world. Because you will meet people and they will tell you to your face, you know, I'm just not convinced. That is not true. Romans talks about this. God has provided enough in this world to convict all of sin. The reason why they reject Christ is not because they lack evidence. It is because they do not care about God as much as they care about themselves. It is selfishness and pride that drives unbelief. Not a lack of 
witnesses or testimonies. And Jesus is exposing that. Every single one of these uh, testimonies that comes out, one, it validates who he is, but two, it exposes their sin because they're continuing to reject even though the evidence is building up. And that obviously culminates in the Father, but then in the Word because they study the Word all the time. Like we would bring them here and they would school all of us. <laughs> they would know the Bible better than I do. But the difference is they had not truly received it, I think is how I would put it. They hadn't received what God had given to them. And that was the issue. Um, I think a great picture of this would be um, if we were to meet someone who had like a PhD in classical music studies. And you were to bring them in and you know, they've studied Beethoven and Mozart's their entire lives. They know every note, they know their life history, they know how it all flows together, but they've never listened to one of the songs. I could bring in the kid who had only heard Beethoven twice and he would know more about Beethoven than that dude with the PhD. The same is true here when it comes to God's word. You can know God's word in and out, but if you have not actually listened to it, if you've not let it rule over your life and transform you, you know nothing about God's word. You could tell me all the verses, I still wouldn't be convinced. And that's what had happened to the Jews as they had allowed their pride to drive their theology, to drive their approach to God. It corrupted them. And so when the word, you know, which was made flesh, arrived, they couldn't recognize him because they'd never actually known the word. And so it became a, a testimony that really didn't mean much to them. And we have to guard our own hearts against that to say, man, are you living in a place where you know God's word, but you haven't actually let it rule you? You don't wake up and you don't actually get excited anymore about reading it. You don't really believe that God is speaking to you through these pages, that it's his words coming through and that they can transform your life. Because a lot of people who don't have joy in their Bible reading, it's because they don't actually listen. And that can happen for a lot of reasons. That doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. I'm not going to suggest that. But I'm saying that when you get into that trap, what God is calling you to do is to come and to come with a posture that is ready to receive. And I think for that to happen, you have to quiet your heart. You have to still what is in your soul. You can't come rushed. You can't come thinking about all the other things. That, that's what pride does. It makes you think about everything else but God. You don't want that. No, for you to actually receive the testimony of God's word, for these people to receive the testimony of God's word, they needed to still. They needed to come under it. And so do we. Okay, last witness. This one's very similar to the previous one, but it's worth distinguishing the two. Because the law testifies. The word testifies. It's talking about the whole Old Testament. Now we're going to be even more specific. The law testifies. Verse 46. Or I'm going to read verse 45. It says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This is Jesus. He's exposed their sin. He says, don't think I'm going to be the one who accuses you for it. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know, it's with the law that the, the Jews really should have realized how terrifying their position was. When the law testifies, that's kind of the last straw because that's their key witness against Jesus. You have to realize that. In the courtroom of God, the key witness against Jesus, they thought, was Moses. But Moses gets up and he says, no, it's actually Jesus. You've been wrong the whole time. And there's really a paradigm shift with this last witness because Jesus is not the one on trial in the courtroom of God. It's the Jews. They've had it wrong this whole time. They thought, okay, we're going to get Jesus. We're going to pin him to the wall. We're going to expose him. And really the whole time, they're the ones under trial. And each of the five witnesses that have come, again, they validate who Jesus is. They testify to it. But even more so, they condemn those who do not believe. And you see that most clearly in Moses. He says, Moses is the one, not who says I'm the son. He does. But no, he's the one who condemns you. He accuses you. And there's a reason for that specifically with the Jewish nation at this point. It's because they were living in works-based salvation. 
You know, they thought that we could go to God's uh, law, and if we followed it, then we earn our way into heaven. And that is our framework. We stay in bounds by doing that. And Jesus, you don't fit in those bounds. So guess what? You're not worth anything to us. Well, Jesus says, you've had it wrong the whole time. That was never the purpose of the law. The law came to expose sin so that you might see your need for me. That's why it testifies. Moses wrote of me. Everything. Ten commandments. You go through all of the the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible. It all points to Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the law was, again, it was to expose their sin, not to eliminate it. That was the mistake. And so when Moses gets up to testify, they think, oh, he's going to say, you know, yeah, the law, it's going to show that we are so nice. We do everything right. We don't ever sin. And it gets up and it says, no, you're wrong. Why? Because if you've sinned once, then you're condemned. If you've sinned even once, one moment of failure, that's enough. And obviously they're all guilty. And so this entire time where they've been trying to put Jesus on trial, little did they realize how lost they were. And they stood condemned. Here's the truth. You stand condemned. Jesus brings up these five witnesses. And as much as they stand here to validate your belief in Jesus Christ, they also stand here to condemn the disbelief in your heart. And the ways that you have, you know, fallen in love with the world. Just like these people did. The ways you have come to God's word superficially, not treating it the way you're supposed to. All of those things condemn you. And there's judgment that comes with it. And it's serious. It's death forever. Judgment in hell. That's what this is talking about. And yet the beautiful thing is that even though we are all guilty, there is still hope. God in his infinite mercy still provides a way for us to be saved. Again, I love what Jesus says If you look with me at the testimony of John, verse 34, he says, the testimony, not that it's something I receive from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus says that. I'm giving you these to be saved, knowing they're going to be rejected. He knows the majority of these people are not going to listen, but he still wants them to believe. That's why he gives it. And it's there for you today also, so that you may believe. That's the whole purpose of this. And when you're in the courtroom of God, you stand condemned. There's judgment to come. And God has one offer for you. It's a single plea deal. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because when you stand there, that is the only thing you can say. You can't get to heaven and say, I'm going to get in by my good works. I'm going to get in because I did blank or I can get in because, you know, I do like Jesus and I tithe and all. No, it's Jesus Christ. Help me, God. That's it. The most holy person in this room, when they get to heaven, that's going to be their plea. It's the only one offered to any of us. And it's the good news. Because Jesus Christ, if you take the deal... If you do plead the name of Jesus, it says he will take your place. Where you stand condemned, he steps in. And he takes it for you. Again, he goes to the cross. Jesus is telling these people, I want you to be saved. But he hadn't really done it yet, had he? We're still in John chapter 5. But he was going to go, knowing that these people, the people he had come to save, had rejected him. And he was going to go to the tree anyways. And he was going to let them nail him to it. And he was going to let them mock him and beat him. He could have taken himself off the cross at any point. But he stayed there and took the wrath of God, the full wrath. He drank it in a couple of hours. I love what John Piper says. He says, it's the wrath that would take us an eternity to empty. He took in a couple of hours in our place. He did that on the tree and he died so that now being raised to newness of life, if you believe and you plead the name of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And so it's a very simple text. And it has one message. It's that there are five testimonies that have been given. And we could spend hours here 
And I could go into all the reasons why, you know, from the world and the science of it. We could talk about it. But those are enough for me because they're enough for God. Those are the ones he gives in this passage. These are his testimonies. And they're given for two reasons. One, so that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you would see the need. And that you would see the heart of Christ for you to say, even though you've rejected him, he still died. That you may give your faith to him. That's the first. The second is this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, this should strengthen it. Each and every one of these witnesses stands there and testifies, yes, keep going. And God has given them to us again so that you may be strengthened in your faith and so that you may be brought to faith for the first time. And so I would plead with you that you listen to them. And again, practically, as you move forward in life, what does this even look like in the day to day? Well, I would say it means avoiding the sin that caused this whole mess in the first place, which was pride. The Jews loved the approval of man. And the thing that they needed to get rid of was that approval. And so honestly, for your lives and for the lives of those you're trying to evangelize with, one of the most effective things you can do is, yes, you can give them the arguments, but call them to repentance. Expose that sin and say, you know, I hear what you're saying about these arguments, but really what I think you're saying is you just don't care. And the reason you don't care is because you're in love with the world. Call them to repentance there. Expose the sinfulness of your own heart there. And that is where God will move and work in you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this message. Uh, God, we thank you for this passage. That God, you would speak to us, that you would give a testimony. Lord, you didn't have to. You're holy, fully separate from us. And God, it's only because you have revealed yourself to us that we can even know you exist, that we can even know we need a savior. But God, you've done more than that. You've given us your word and in it, Lord, the testimony of these five witnesses, I pray that you would press these upon the hearts of everyone here, upon my own heart, Lord, that you would show us how they expose our sin, leading us to the cross, and how also they encourage us to keep going forward. God, I pray that we would cling to these in our times of need, and that, God, as we do, you would move in and through us by the power of your Spirit to make us more like Jesus, and that, God, you would be glorified. God, would you be with us now as we go to small groups, as we discuss, and as we try and drive home in the storm? Protect us. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen.